Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, the scripture reading this morning is Revelation chapter 9 and then chapter 11, not chapter 10. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts of the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots, with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the colour of fire and of sapphire and of sulphur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulphur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulphur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths, and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Then I was, giving a me- I was given a measuring rod like a star, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
and I will grant authority for my, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some, of the, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were ter terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Thanks, Colin. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here online with you today. Uh, and we are going to do something this week that we did last week. Um, we tried it last week for the first time, and I think it went pretty well. We've got some good feedback from it. So we're going to try it again today. And that is a Q&A time after the sermon. I know the book of Revelation is quite confusing to a lot of us. It's quite tricky. And so as I am preaching today, if you have questions about the things that I'm saying, or if you have questions about things in the passage that you saw as we were reading it, but I'm not mentioning them, uh, what we want you to do 
is on the Zoom chat, send a private message to Les with your question. And after the sermon, Les will go through the questions and ask a few of them, and we'll have a chance to discuss them. And hopefully that can help clarify anything that's still confusing after the sermon. Sound good? All right, great. So in 2008, there was a movie that came out called Vantage Point. Have any of you seen it? I watched it recently on Hong Kong Netflix because I was planning to use it in the sermon and figured I'd check it out in advance. Uh, so it's not a great movie. Uh, but why do I mention it if it's not a great movie? Well, because it did something different than we normally expect in movies. Normally, we expect that when we watch a movie, the action is generally going to follow a chronological moving forward chronologically. Uh, and so if, if event B happens in the movie five minutes after event A, then we expect that in the world of the movie, event B is happening after event A. But in Vantage Point, that doesn't happen. In Vantage Point, they show you this 20-minute scene that happens in 20 minutes of world of the story time. And when they get to the end of that 20 minutes, they just rewind and show you the same 20 minutes again and again and again and again, each time focused on a different character with a different perspective, viewing the same series of events. And seeing this same period of time from all these different perspectives allows you to pick up details that you missed the first time around. And I mentioned this movie Vantage Point because that pattern is basically what's happening in the book of Revelation. So God has revealed a series of visions to John, and each of these visions covers the same period of time, the time between Jesus' life on earth and his second coming. And we go through one series, and at the end, we get to the final judgment, like with the seals last week, they end in the seventh seal with final judgment. And then once we get there, we just rewind and view the whole thing again but from a different angle, just like in the movie Vantage Point. And so today we're looking at another series of judgments. Today we're looking at what's called the trumpet judgments. And John sees these trumpet judgments after he sees the seals, but that doesn't mean they're happening after the seals happen. They're actually happening simultaneously with the seals, but they're showing us a different angle or a different perspective of the events on the earth during that same time. And so the trumpets are going to show us how the suffering on the earth impacts non-Christians and what God's goals are for the unbelieving world in their suffering. And what we're going to see today is that God uses suffering to bring the world to faith. God uses suffering to bring the world to faith. And we'll look at warnings, witness, and victory. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the chance to study your word and the freedom to do that. And we pray that as we look at your word today, that you would be equipping us to live as overcomers, to live as people who remain faithful to Jesus, no matter what we face in life, no matter what difficulties or trials may come our way, God. We pray that you would be honored through this time and that your name would be lifted high. And in Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, today we're looking at the trumpet judgments. And one really important thing to remember in the trumpet judgments is, as we've been saying all along, symbolism is huge in the book of Revelation. So if you look at the trumpets, there's a ton of weird stuff going on there, right? Like 
Does anyone agree with that? Like in the passage we just read, there are locusts that look like horses, but with human faces and crowns and women's hair and lion's teeth. Like that's weird. Can we all agree that's weird? And we need to remember that Revelation uses images to grip our imaginations, to help us not just know stuff, but feel it. So I think these locusts aren't meant to be taken literally. If you think they are meant to be taken literally, look how many times the word like appears in this passage. John saw something and he was so overwhelmed by what he saw, he didn't quite know how to describe it. And so he did the best job he could to describe it in a way that would somewhat get us across, but like he didn't know how to describe it. And so when we look at the images painted for us in the trumpets, especially trumpets five and six, it actually feels like something out of a nightmare, right? Like those locusts sound like something you would see in a terrible, terrible dream and wake up screaming. And that's intentional. John is trying to show us and get us not just to know intellectually, but to feel deep down that terror is coming on the world. He wants us to feel that terror, not just know it. And so for the sake of time, we skipped over the first four trumpets in our reading today. We just read through five, six, and seven. So here's a summary of the trumpets as a whole. There's a series of disasters that's striking every part of nature. Like with the seals from last week, these are probably not specific individual events that are gonna happen in the future. They're probably a general pattern of events that's gonna happen repeatedly all throughout history between Jesus' first and second comings. And I'm, like I mentioned last week, if you believe that they're referring to specific individual future events, that's fine. You can believe that. But remember, the Bible refers to suffering in the time between Jesus' life on earth and his second coming as birth pains. And birth pains are the same type of pain just happening over and over and over again and getting more intense. So the fact that suffering during this time is birth pains means even if they're going to be a specific individual event in the future, we should expect the same types of events will be happening in the world all throughout history. And so as we look at the trumpets, we're seeing the same time period covered by the seals from a different angle, a different vantage point, if you will. And I want to look at a couple ways the trumpets are different than the seals, just to help us see these differences. The first way is the goal. We said last week with the seals, the goal of the seals is to show that suffering will happen, but God uses suffering to purify Christians while bringing his justice on the earth. Well, with the trumpets, the goal is to get the unbelieving world to wake up from their rejection of God and trust in Jesus. The picture of the trumpet judgments is if you don't wake up, if you don't repent, you are going to be destroyed. And in this terrible irony, you're actually going to be destroyed by the very things you're trusting rather than God. So if you trust in this world and the things of this world to give you security and comfort and identity, well, guess what? The trumpets show us how the things of this world are constantly being damaged and corrupted in such a way that they kill people. If you trust in the things of this world rather than God, you are trusting in things that will kill you. Or maybe you trust in some other God other than the God of the Bible. Well, guess what? Revelation tells us there are only two sides to be on. You, you can worship God or you can not worship God, which is 
in this passage, we see the same as worshiping idols or demons or Satan. And God guards and protects his own, but Satan does not. Satan is out to harm and kill and destroy, and he is so eager to do this that if he can't harm, kill, and destroy God's people, he'll send his forces after his own people. If you worship Satan or things aligned with him, which is what we're doing anytime we don't give our full worship to God, Satan will destroy you. We see this most clearly in the fifth trumpet, where uh, there's this demonic army pictured as locusts under the control of Satan or one of his top assistants, and they're attacking the earth. And look in chapter 9, verse 4, at who they attack. Only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. That's everyone on earth who's not a Christian. Satan and his forces are so desperate to destroy and cause harm that they will attack and harm their own rather than resist their desire to destroy. Anything you're trusting in other than God for your safety and security will destroy you. That's what the trumpets are trying to tell us. And so they're warning us, stop trusting in them. Realize how powerless these things are to save you and trust in God instead. And so the goal of the trumpets is different than the goal of the seals. Second, we see that the intensity of the trumpets is more intense than the intensity of the seals. If you remember from last week, with the fourth seal, death is given authority over a quarter of the earth. But throughout the trumpets, different spheres are being impacted. And again and again, we see that it's a third of those things that are being impacted. That a third is bigger than a quarter. Why is it bigger number? Because there's escalation happening here. The seals cause harm because we live in a fallen world that rejects God. But the trumpets are intentionally trying to get people's attention and wake them up. So God turns up the heat to get people to start paying attention. And again, there is symbolism all over Revelation. I don't think a third is, is literally saying a third of the earth will be impacted, although it may be. But I think it's symbolic. It's meant to show there's escalation happening here. These things are going to be widespread throughout the earth, all throughout history, and the trumpets are going to be more intense of an experience than the seals. And as we move farther into the book, the intensity level keeps getting cranked up. And the trumpet judgments, they're modeled after the plagues of Egypt in the book of Exodus. Now, if you remember from the book of Exodus and the 10 plagues in Egypt, the most intense and severe of the plagues in Egypt, they impacted the Egyptians, but not the Israelites. And again, we see that paralleled in the trumpet judgments, especially the fifth trumpet, where, as we just saw, the locusts are banned from harming God's people. God's people are protected while the unbelieving world around us is harmed. And a big reason the church is guarded and protected during the trumpets is that there is a bunch of demonic activity happening during the trumpets. So if you look at the third and fifth trumpets, they both talk about stars falling to the earth. Those falling stars are almost certainly fallen angels who have been kicked out of heaven, not literal stars falling from the sky. And then when we get to the sixth trumpet, there are four angels who are released, who want nothing more than to harm and destroy the earth. They're fallen angels. So in at least trumpets three, five, and six, maybe the other ones as well, there's suffering that's not just physical, 
but demon-empowered spiritual and mental and emotional torment. It's more intense. And what we see as the book of Revelation unfolds is that God allows his people to go through physical suffering in the seals, but he guards the church from the spiritual and demonic attack happening in the world in the trumpets. Yes, God lets the church and Christians experience suffering, but the spiritual attacks, the demonic attacks happening in the trumpets, he guards and protects us from these things. But he allows them for the unbelieving world because he wants to get their attention. He wants them to wake up and realize that they're trusting in things that will destroy them, and so they need to trust in him instead. And do the trumpets achieve their goal? After destruction and torment and death plague the world, does that finally lead to worldwide repentance? No, not at all. We're told after trumpets one through six in Revelation chapter nine, verse 20, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. There are two big things I want you to notice from that verse. First, you can't not worship. Everyone worships. There's a myth in our world that it's possible to not worship, to be non-religious or neutral. But according to the Bible, that's a lie. All of us have something or someone that's ultimate to us in life. It could be an idea like fame or comfort or power. It could be an object like money. It could be a person like our spouse or our children. But whatever it is that's ultimate to us in life, you and I live in a way that shows that thing is valuable. We make sacrifices to get it. We invest our time and money and attention into getting more of it. That's worship. That's what worship is. Making sacrifices to get something and spending our time and money and attention to get it. That is worship which means all of us worship all the time. The idea that you can go through life not worshiping is a myth. And according to this passage, there are really only two categories for what we can worship. We can worship God or we can worship idols, which is the same as worshiping demons, which will destroy you. The second thing we see in this passage is why people don't turn to proper worship even after God's warnings. See, God just brought a series of calamities on the earth to wake people up, to get their attention, and the people decide, rather than worship God, we'd rather keep worshiping these idols. These idols that made life so miserable that we would rather die than live, we want to keep worshiping them rather than God. Why would they do that? And it's because they've been deceived. We're shown in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan, the head of these demonic forces, is a deceiver and an accuser and a slanderer. Did you notice that in the sixth trumpet, the power of the horses that bring death to mankind is in their mouths? We see that in 918. The fact that this demon-led army in the sixth trumpet involves torments coming out of their mouths seems to point to the fact that the demons work just like their leader. They attack with their mouths, just as Satan deceives and accuses and slanders, so do all his forces, which means that humanity refuses to repent because they've been deceived. Satan and his forces have spread lies. They've spread lies about God. Oh, God's just a, he's a cosmic killjoy. He's out to have your fun. If you want real fun, you got to get away from him. They spread lies about themselves. Hey, you want true life? Come follow us. Even as they're tormenting you and making life miserable, 
They, they convince us life is found in following us. They spread lies about other Christians so that we'll stay away from seeking help in the church. Oh, those Christians, they're not going to understand your struggles. They're not trustworthy. If you tell one of them, they're all going to know all your deepest, darkest secrets. So don't go to them. These demons spread lies about salvation. They say, hey, you know what you need to really be okay? Alcohol, pornography, just spend more time at work, Netflix. If you get a spouse, that'll fix you. They focus us on, on lie after lie to keep us seeking salvation in all these false saviors that can never rescue us so that we don't notice that what we really need all along is God. And so even as Satan and his forces torment and torture the non-Christian world, bring them to the point of despair where they believe death is better than life. At the same time, they're blinding humanity's eyes and making people believe that they're the good guys in the process. Satan and his forces deceive people so they won't repent and find true life in Jesus. And so if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, we're so glad you're here with us, but I need you to hear this. If you don't believe God is good or worth worshiping, you are believing a lie. And you're believing a lie that's being told to you by someone who wants to kill you. And I know this is really uncomfortable, but God is going to allow suffering to come into your life. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you and he wants you to wake up from the lie. He wants you to find true life in him. And he will do whatever it takes to get your attention so that he can rescue you because he loves you that much. And I realize that's probably everything up till now is probably a strange and a bit depressing of a way to start off a sermon, huh? Judgment's coming, demonic attacks, people won't believe. What does this have to do with Christians? How does this equip Christians to live as overcomers? Is there any hope? And the answer is absolutely there is hope. And actually what we see in chapter 11 is God has a job for Christians to do during this time to join him in this work of drawing the unbelieving world to himself and being faithful to that role God has called us to is key to living as overcomers, to staying faithful to Jesus, no matter what we face in life. And that brings us to our second point, witness. Because the, goal, the role God has for the church during this time is to be witnesses for him. And we see this in the first half of chapter 11. We see in the first couple of verses, John is brought to the temple. He's told to measure the inside of it, but not the outside, because the outside has been given over to the nations to be trampled on. And remember, John, throughout Revelation, he's using symbols. He's using imagery. So this is probably not a literal temple that's been rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's probably a symbol. And what's it symbolic of? Well, in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, Paul says the church is the true temple of God. So in light of this, when John is called to measure out the temple, he's called to measure out the true church, those who truly trust in Jesus for protection. And this part about the outer court being templed, it either means God will protect the church spiritually, but our bodies, our outsides will still experience harm. Or it means that God will protect those who truly trust in him, the true church, but his protection won't cover fake Christians who show up to church on Sunday, but don't really trust in him, the outsiders. We actually see in Revelation, both of those things are true. I don't know which one is being pointed to here. It's one of those. 
But why does God need to protect the church? It's because he has a job for us. Look at verses three and four of chapter 11. I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now what's going on here? Who are these witnesses? What do they have to do with us? Well, if we look back in Revelation chapter one, we're introduced to seven lampstands, the same word that we see here in verse four. And we're told that lampstands in Revelation equal the church. So John just did all the hard work for us. He, he told us when we see that these witnesses are lampstands, we know what that means. It means they are the church. They're not two random dudes in Israel. They're the whole church all around the world, all throughout history. And what is the fundamental job of the church? We're witnesses. Like a witness in court tells the judge and jury about what they saw and heard, we are called to tell the world around us about Jesus. And there are two witnesses because in the Old Testament law, you needed two witnesses to confirm an event for your testimony to be valid in court. And not only that, but we are prophets, it says. Remember, biblical prophecy sometimes tells people what will happen in the future. But more often, it pulls back the curtain to show people God's perspective on the events happening on the earth right now. So as prophets, our job is to be truth tellers, to remind the world there is a God. He is a righteous judge who hates sin, but there's hope. There's hope for you to know him as a loving father. So do you realize if you're a Christian, the reason God left you on earth and didn't just skip you ahead to the new heavens and new earth the moment you became a Christian is because he loves your family and friends and neighbors, and he wants them to know him too. Like if you're a teen, God didn't put you in your school by accident or by mistake. He put you there because there are people in your school who need to hear about him and he wants you to tell them. If you're a parent, God didn't give you your kids by mistake. He gave them to you because they need to hear about him and he wants you to tell them who he is and how great he is. He wants us to live as witnesses to him and his goodness. God calls the church to tell the world around us about him. But again, the world doesn't listen. They seek to harm God's witnesses, and God protects the witnesses for a while, but then he allows them to be killed by Satan's forces. That's what we see in, in verse 7. God allows the church to be attacked and persecuted, and for some Christians, to be killed. And when the world sees it, they celebrate, because the message they've been hearing from the church bothered them. It disturbed them, and they're so happy that it's done. But then we see after three and a half days, just almost about the same amount of time that Jesus stayed dead, God breathes life back into his witnesses. They come back to life. They ascend to heaven in a cloud, just like Jesus. And so we see the ministry of the church parallels the ministry of Jesus. We speak the truth about God to the world. We demonstrate through our lives that it really is God's word. We face rejection and persecution and death, and then we're resurrected and we ascend to heaven. And just as Jesus' suffering brought life to his people, our suffering brings life to the unbelieving world. Check out what it says in verse 13 right there in chapter 11. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, 
and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, John's doing something amazing and creative and wonderful here that we're going to completely miss if we don't know our Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, what would happen is God would send prophets, and they would warn his people about coming judgments for sin. And he would say, I'm going to wipe out the nation and just preserve a small remnant. And sometimes that remnant was described as 7,000 people or a tenth of the nation, a tiny fraction compared to the ones who are wiped out. But look what happens here. A tenth of the city falls and 7,000 people are killed. That's a tiny fraction compared to those who aren't killed. The whole model of judgment has just been flipped on its head. Rather than almost all get destroyed and a few survive, now it's a few get destroyed and almost all survive. And look what happens to the survivors. They were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Every time those Greek words gave glory to God appear in the New Testament, it's referring to genuine worship. The picture here is that there will be a widespread revival of the people of the earth happening and being drawn to worship Jesus. And I need you to hear something. And this is going to be uncomfortable for you. I know that because it's uncomfortable for me. But look what it is that leads the world to finally trust in Jesus. It's not the trumpets and God's warning judgments. Those were terrible, but the people of the world stayed hardened in their sin throughout them. It's not Christians telling them about God. Yes, that is vital. It is essential. The world needs to hear about God to be able to make sense of who he is in the end. But when the teaching is on its own, the world rejects it and persecutes it. The thing that finally leads the world to trust in Jesus is them watching how Christians suffer for Jesus. God uses suffering to bring the world to faith, but the suffering that brings the world to faith is our suffering, not theirs. It's you and me enduring for Jesus, even when it costs us, even when it leads to rejection and attacks. It's you and me living in such a way that it shows that even if it costs us everything to be faithful to Jesus, he is worth it. That's what convinces a hardened and unbelieving world that Jesus is truly worth following. Because it shows them a level of hope and security they've always wanted in life, but never knew was possible. And this pattern is exactly what you see if you study the history of the church. Like the first 300 years of the church, the Roman government persecuted Christians. If you were a Christian up until the year 300 AD, you knew that at some point, simply being a Christian and trying to live faithful to Jesus could cost you your life. And do you know what happened to the church during that time? It exploded. It grew from 120 Jewish nobodies in about 30 AD to about 6 million people or about 10% of the Roman Empire in 300 AD. As the world watched Christians suffer and be persecuted for their faith, they trusted in Jesus. And it's happening today too. Operation World is a ministry that seeks to mobilize Christians to pray for world missions. And in 2019, they released a list of the top 40 countries with the fastest growing evangelical population. Anyone have any idea what number one and two were? Where Christianity is growing the fastest in the world as of 2019. Let me tell you, Iran was number one. Afghanistan was number two. 
two countries where you are liable to be killed if someone finds out you're a Christian, but they are the two countries where Christianity is growing the fastest in the world today. What John said would happen in Revelation 11 has held through throughout, held true throughout church history. The church remaining faithful to Jesus in the midst of suffering is one of the most powerful tools that God uses to draw people to himself. And we're in Hong Kong. If you look at the way the laws in Hong Kong have changed the past couple of years, I know a lot of people are concerned that more persecution may be coming our way as Christians. And who knows what that could look like? I mean, would it mean that we're not going to be allowed to meet in person for church? Maybe. Would it mean that, that church leaders get locked up and thrown in prison or kicked out of the city? Maybe. Would it mean companies are told to cut ties with all their Christian employees? Who knows? I mean, is anyone getting a little shiver of fear down your back as I mention these things? It's scary to think about, right? We don't like to think about these things. But listen up. If these things happen, it's not a sign that God is losing. It's not a sign that we are losing. It's not a sign that it's time to pack it in and give up. It's none of these things. No, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to join in the suffering of Christ. It's an invitation to be used mightily by God to transform the world around us in a way that we never could without this suffering. It's an invitation to be overcomers. And I know that's scary to think about. It's going to be hard to do. No one wants to suffer. So what's going to give us the strength to endure this suffering? Seeing God's victory. When we get to the seventh trumpet, we see God's final victory on the earth. I've been telling you, each series of judgments ends with the return of Jesus. And we haven't had time yet for me to show you where that is. So I'm going to show you where that is in the seventh trumpet. Because in the seventh trumpet, God's kingdom breaks through into the earth in its fullness. We're at the end of the timeline. The book could end here, except that we need to see these same things again from a few more angles. And God shows us his victory here. Because unless you and I have a vision for the fact that God's victory is secure, unless you and I understand that God's kingdom gets the last word, we won't have the stamina to stand for him when it gets hard today. Knowing our future is secure, no matter what we face today, is what gives us the strength to suffer well for Jesus today. And so the first place we see God's kingdom breaking through is in chapter 11, verse 15. It says, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I'm going to put on a grammar nerd hat for a couple of minutes, because we need to see some grammar stuff happening in this passage to really understand what's happening here. Look at this word, this verb, has become. Do you know what tense that is? It's what's called the perfect tense. And in Greek, the perfect tense refers to an event that happened in the past, but the effects of it continue into the present. The use of the perfect tense here means that when the seventh trumpet is blown, God's kingdom has already fully invaded our world because Jesus has come again and his reign that started in the past is continuing into the present. God's victory is secure and complete. One other place we see this in this passage Look at verse 17. God is referred to as him who was and who is, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, earlier in Revelation, 
we saw God referred to as him who was and is and is to come. And again, grammar nerd hat, was and is both come from the verb to be. Is to come in English can refer to the verb to be, but it can also refer to the verb to come. So if I say the game is coming up tomorrow, it means the same thing as the game will be tomorrow. But if I say less is coming to my house tomorrow, it's not the same as saying less will be my house tomorrow. You see the difference? Hopefully. In the earlier verses in Revelation, the verb for is to come is the verb for to come, not the verb for to be. So these verses earlier in Revelation, they're not saying in the words of Chris Tomlin, you were, you are, you will always be. That's true biblically, but that's not what those verses are saying. What they're saying is you were, you are, and you're coming from where you are to where we are. Or in other words, you were, you are, and you're coming again. You still with me? So when we look at verse 17, we see the is and the was, the verbs have been flipped in their order, but they're still right there. Same two verbs, but is to come has been replaced. And it's been replaced by, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, why did they change the formula? Because at this point in the story, Jesus has already come back. There is no more is to come because he already came. He's taken his power. He's begun to reign. God's kingdom is here in its fullness at this point in the vision. God shows us that he and his kingdom are going to win and have the last word. And he shows that right after telling us that we're going to suffer. He gives us immediate assurance that he is coming again. And when he comes, he will reign. He will set all things right. He will reward his servants. So whatever we suffer for him now will be worth it. He will destroy the destroyers of the earth. So we get the justice that we long for because God is king and his victory is secure. And that knowledge is meant to equip us to stand for him today as faithful witnesses, even if it means suffering. God has a plan to bring revival and save many people in our world church. Is that exciting to you? I think that's exciting. And you and I are part of his plan. Is that not even more exciting? Like you and I are part of God's plan to bring revival on the earth, but it's not going to happen the way we would have chosen for it to happen if it were up to us. It's going to mean suffering. But God promises to keep us secure as his people and reward us if we remain faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us, who loves our world, who doesn't just give up on us when we're difficult and disobedient, but that you give us warning after warning after warning, and you have a plan for how you're going to rescue and save the unbelieving world. And God, we pray that you'd forgive us for the times that we've refused to be part of your plan, that we've refused to trust you and follow you in suffering. We pray that you would give us hearts that stand for you no matter what we face, that would be able to be firm and secure in your love, even when it's difficult, and that you would use us to draw the unbelieving world around us to yourself. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.